When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Tommy Vitor. John Lovett is on vacation. Big birthday boy. Birthday boy is just Getting taking some off. Now nah, he's 40 now, so he's feeling. I thought he was 50. On today's show, Republicans are in disarray as Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell fight over their party's chances to take back the Senate. Beto O'Rourke joins to talk about his run for governor in Texas. And Jared Kushner's new book gets one of the most devastating reviews we've ever read. I mean, it depends on how you're looking at it. It could be. It was a great review, in my opinion. <laughs> we'll get to it. We'll get to that. Accurate. We'll never know. But first, to post or not to post, that is the question for the hosts of Dare We Say this week. Josie Toda, Alicia Pascal-Pena, and Yasmin Hamidi talked about performative activism and how social media has mobilized the activists and all of us for the best and for the worst. Plus, there's a new segment called The Ickuation Room, where the girls discuss one of the most polarizing topics, the Zara landing page. Zara. Zara. I knew it was called Zara. <laughs> I said, I knew it was Zara. Leave it in. I Leave knew it was Zara. In. No one corrected me. I corrected myself. You don't want to miss it. I don't know anything about what's wrong with the Zara landing page. Do you, Tommy? No. It's just, we know it's where Nick Shapiro gets all his shirts. That's, yeah, we do know that. <laughs> anyway, you don't want to miss Dare We Say. New episodes drop every Thursday wherever you get your podcast. Right, now I got to find out what's wrong with the Zara landing page. I was, yeah. I'm going to have to download Don't go looking now. Don't go looking okay, now. Okay, you're right. Also, check out the Crooked Store to find all new Vote Save America merch. A portion of every single order on the Crooked Store goes to Vote Riders. That is the leading organization focused on informing citizens of their state's voter ID requirements and helping them secure the documents they may need to vote. So check out crooked.com slash merch for the latest drop. Then head to votesaveamerica.com to find out how to get involved and do your part in getting involved in this year's midterms. All right, let's get to the news. In the last week or so, most election forecasters have said that control of the Senate is now a toss-up, and none other than Mitch McConnell seems to agree. Uh, Here's what he recently said to an NBC reporter, quote, I think there's probably a greater likelihood the House flips than the Senate. Senate races are just different. They're statewide. Candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome. Hmm. On Sunday, Donald Trump, truth to truth in response. (laughs) I, is there an easy way to find his truths? I, obviously, I'm not signing up for truth. But does someone retweet his truths full time? Yes, I'm getting a nod from Andy. Yes, I noticed like people pluck up some of them out. There was like an account. There was like a bot account that was doing it. But then I think Twitter shut that down because it's like they don't. Their whole point was to get <laughs> the rid of spirit Trump. of the law. Yeah, so the you still sort of rely on reporters to just give you the truth once in a while. But oh, it's like I want to get I those s- truths all the time. Full time truths. I want my truths. How far we've come on this issue? Anyway. Here's the here's this particular truth. 
Why do Republican senators allow a broken down hack politician, Mitch McConnell, to openly disparage hardworking Republican candidates? He should spend more time and money helping them get elected and less time helping his crazy wife and family get rich on China. <laughs> rich on China. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is his former, uh, his former transportation secretary yes. he was talking about. For all four years. Uh, Elaine Chao. Yeah. yeah. So I guess he turned on her because she, uh, remember she called on him to resign? She opposed the, the insurrection. Yeah, yeah she, she opposed it. She opposed the violent insurrection. So that was right. that. Um, all right. Why do you think Mitch said that? I mean, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, John, but roughly translates to uh, don't blame me if the Democrats keep the Senate. <laughs> blame Trump and the idiots he recruited. That's how, that's what I heard. Because Mitch McConnell doesn't just say don't things. Don't blame me. Yeah, it's very. He doesn't. He's he's pretty calculating guy. Oh, that's one thing word. you can say about Mitch McConnell. Everywhere he could have easily said, "I feel good," or "We'll see what happens in November." Like, yeah. In he, fact, showing even that little bit of um, insecurity about the outcome is very unlike him. Very unlike him. He wants to hang this around Donald Trump's neck if they lose, and he wants to blame him specifically for the candidates he has endorsed in the Senate primaries, who are now. Most of them nominees, uh, Herschel Walker, mm-hmm. Blake Masters, Dr. Oz, Adam Laxalt. These are all Trump candidates. Yeah, I think these comments are probably the most directed at Dr. Oz uh, down in Pennsylvania and Herschel Walker in Georgia. But he's also, Mitch McConnell is obvious, also probably not happy about his super PAC having to spend $28 million uh, worth of ads in Ohio to help out J.D. Vance. Mm-hmm. And J.D. Vance has been critical of McConnell personally. Uh, he called him out of touch with the base which is fun uh, in 2022. That means, uh, I guess, too old to storm the Capitol. Um, also, Eric Schmidt, the uh, Republican candidate in Missouri, and Blake Masters have also both suggested that McConnell should no longer lead the GOP. So I don't know. I wonder if like, Mitch isn't liking the vibes. Isn't liking the vibes. Yeah, you probably don't get a... Um, they, if they did take the Senate, I bet you don't have a critical majority of Trumpers that would throw out McConnell. But it's getting it'd get, be uncomfortable for McConnell. Yeah, it's getting annoying for him. Um, do you think McConnell's right in what he said? Um, he's absolutely right. The candidate quality matters. <laughs> I think his full quote was like, maybe we'll tie. Maybe they'll win it by a couple. Maybe we'll win it by a couple. So like he's, yes, he's absolutely right. Quality matters. And I think you're seeing that in some of these numbers, especially like Herschel Walker, who's just, or Dr. Oz, who are just fumbling their way to. Yeah. Well, and one reason that we know candidate quality matters in Senate races is that we've seen Republicans miss a chance to retake the Senate in uh, 2010, when obviously Republicans did really, really well in the House and took back the House. It was a horrible year for us being in the White House as Democrats. Yeah, that stunk. Um, but uh, they had horrible candidates. And in 2012, they had a chance, too, and they blew it with because they had candidates like Todd Akin in Missouri, uh, Richard Murdoch, Sharon Engel in Nevada, Christine O'Donnell. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't remember Christine O'Donnell, uh, she was running in, in uh, for the Senate in Delaware. And for one Dan of her, seat. Yeah. For Dan seat, yeah. And one of her ads, she had to come out and say, I am not a witch. Yeah, that was a... That was a thing that happened first. back in 2010. Well... Maybe not historic first. It probably happened in like the 1600s, <laughs> but those were different times. Um, yeah. Todd Aiken had some despicable comments about rape. Horrible human being. Yeah. Richard Murdoch did as well. There was a, uh, in, in abortion, there was those two candidates that were saying horrible things about rape and abortion. You know, it's great. I don't even remember who Richard Murdoch is. He ran in Indiana and he's Rupert's could have, friend. you know, Indiana Republican state and didn't, and didn't win. Good. 
Um, so yeah, so it's happened to Mitch McConnell and the Republican yeah, Party before, like. so they think it could happen again, even when the political environment is uh, better for Republicans. So Shane Goldmacher at the New York Times reported last week that um, the National Republican Senatorial Committee recently canceled $10 million worth of planned advertising in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona. What'd you make of that story? So there've actually been a bunch of very interesting, fun stories about the NRSC, the National Republican Senate Committee, and their spending. So the New York Times said they had cut 10 million in ads. Politico said they had cut 13.5 million in ad cuts. And then later in that, I think that same paragraph in the story said, but a Democratic source said it was 10. Just sort of like a bitchy little aside <laughs> pointing to what the, yeah. the New York Times sourcing was. But Politico has, uh, since August 1st, the NRSC has cut ad buys in Pennsylvania, 7.5 million. Cut off the top. Arizona, 3.5. Wisconsin, 2.5. And Nevada, 1.5. So it's hard to know exactly what's happening here because there's so many different committees and so much money sloshing around obviously john in an ideal world you don't cut <laughs> ad spending tell, let's just <laughs> less than 100 days. let's just go with the simple explanation it's not good i mean there's all this spin from the nrsc in the piece that's like well we're moving it from the independent expenditure side which is the side that you can't coordinate directly with the campaigns right, by law right. to we're going to move some of it directly to the other side so we can coordinate with the campaigns themselves better and it's just moving money around here and there and all that kind of shit but that like you said, the bottom line is you don't you don't cut money, <laughs> you, don't, yeah. you don't cut spending uh, this this a couple months out before the election. Also, presumably, if you're buying ads eight months out, six months out, a year out, you can kind of get a better rate than at the very end when everyone's trying to come in and the, yeah. the prices go up. We also do know that the NRC has already spent uh, thirty six million in ads so far. The question is just always like, what's going to happen with the super PAC spending? Because Mitch McConnell has this huge super PAC and he's dumping cash places. Peter Thiel is trying to personally buy the race uh, in Arizona. And then he gave $10 million to J.D. Vance. The really, really fun part is that the, the Republicans hate Rick Scott. They yeah. hate Rick Scott, the head of the NRSC. Um, and there were some stats in one of those stories. So the DSCC has nearly twice as much cash on hand as the NRSC, $53 million to 28 million basically the washington post said that democrats are outspending republicans by more than double in the arizona race uh two to one in nevada nearly two to one in nevada and four to one in ohio according to some media tracking firms and then they again they say like it's not fundraising the republican senate uh, campaign has raised 173 million but they're down to only having 28 million left and they also pointed out that rick scott cut and released an ad featuring him like himself. Himself saying some of the most <laughs> unpopular things a Republican could possibly say. So it's just, I, we don't, I don't know what it'll mean for the election. The consensus clearly is the NRSC is poorly run and a terrible organization. You also just have to assume that Trump constantly fundraising with these email alerts. And that's, I was going to bring he's that He's got to be siphoning off some cash. Of course he is. It's so funny that Donald Trump is doing his like best fundraising ever, especially like after the FBI thing too. He's not on the ballot. Right. The NRCs, they're having, you're right that they raised a bunch of money. They're having low dollar fundraising issues. Like they're having yeah. trouble getting like the five and $10 donations from the base. So they have to relying on these like big billionaire donors and the, the super PACs. And the stuff win like that. red, that's their act blue version. They're down 12% in Q2 versus Q1. Yeah. It's like, instead it's like, Democrats give, are up. give Rick's got your money and then he'll go on tv and tell people how he wants to uh, eliminate medicare and social security and raise taxes on working class people it'll be great here's what we're gonna do <laughs> it's gonna be awesome imagine the most unappealing man you can possibly think of just like lord voldemort <laughs> in a hat for some reason 
and then give him awful ideas that give everyone him the, give hates. him the worst polling ideas that you thought were buried in the Mitt Romney Paul Ryan campaign then of 2012. Put him on TV. But we'll bring him back for millions. That's what we're going to do. That's our that's um, the plan. Now, lest anyone worry that Republicans are strapped for cash, uh, the Times followed up with the story Monday that this 90-year-old manufacturing mogul I had never heard of named Me either. Barre Side is that how we're pronouncing it? I mean, is it like a like a bar class? Like a bar, spelled sort of like a bar class. Because our landing page. Anyway, um, he made a donation worth one point six billion dollars to a right wing group called the Marble Freedom Trust, which is controlled by Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society. Uh, how alarmed were you about this story? This is one of those stories that's like it's so complicated and confusing that it's easy to get lost. Let me give you the here's what you need to know. Leonard Leo, as you said right-wing creep. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he actually finally left the Federalist Society to move on to a new equally murky role. I think he like sits on the board Conservative still. donor. He's got, yeah, like, a, he's, he's got like an honorary he, board seat. He's got his finger on the pulse. Leonard Leo basically owns stock in uh, a huge chunk of the right-wing judges currently serving anywhere in the country, including Supreme Court justices like Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett. He's buddies with Clarence Thomas from back in the day. Clarence Thomas uh, once called Leonard Leo the number three most powerful person in the world. Mm, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, Federal Society, bad, powerful right-wing organization that marries up sort of right-wing zealots, corporate money in the in the judicial branch. Not a good combo. So here's what happened here. This Leonard Leo starts this new organization called the Marble Freedom Trust in May of 2020. It's a nonprofit. This donor donates 100% of the shares of a company I think he started or he owned called Triplight. Who cares what it does? And then the company was sold to an Irish conglomerate for $1.65 So that means I think the nonprofit pays no taxes yeah. on the sale. I suspect it also means that this original donor avoids any ta taxes on this sale. Correct. I wonder if, I don't think he gets to write off the profits because I don't think you can write off donations to C4s versus C3s. Yeah. But maybe. And I, like whether or not that's the case. Here's the like point. The, the, the real bad part is now they have $1.6 billion to spend on politics. Two bad points. The campaign <laughs> finance system is totally broken. Right. And now yeah. Leonard Leo has well over a billion dollars to just shovel at every right-wing cause that he wants. And here's the, I mean. So much money. You brought this up many times because you're a Jane Mayer fan and you've uh, and you've read Jane Mayer stuff. You got my attention. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's not just that they're spending this money or that they can spend this money on races, right? They are going to spend this on um, institutions, policy, think tanks, right? Like they are going local races, local institutions, media organizations, right? Like this is now the single largest political donation in history. History. $1.6 billion to seed this right-wing MAGA revolution all over the country, not just in electoral politics, but in every facet, uh, every institution you could imagine. Yeah, ironically, um, under the IRS code, these are called social welfare organizations. Right, right. And so this is like, it's just, it's it's pretty scary. It's, it's so scary. much money. And it's so much money. They have like $1.4 left over just to do whatever they want with for for forever. Anyway, so this is why we need to um, this is why we need to win uh, so the elections here. So let's talk about these Senate races and the quality of the Republican candidates uh, that seem to be worrying Mitch McConnell. Uh, and we can just go through go through the map here. Sure. So the Senate's currently split 50-50. There are four Senate Democrats who are in competitive races: Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock, Arizona Senator Mark Kelly, Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, and New Hampshire Senator Maggie Hassan. How tight are these races? 
And what do you think about their Republican opponent, opponents? So, John, I checked back in with uh, the 538 podcast this week. <laughs> you did. Mostly. It's that time of year again, Well, mostly, huh? uh, yeah, I wanted to hear uh, Galen ask just like a totally straightforward question and then Nate kind of get mad at the premise. <laughs> yeah, sort of like a little passive aggressive. Yeah, just sort of like, how dare you? Yeah, no, but uh, there's a, they, they have it at 60% chance that Democrats hold the Senate. Uh, the odds in the House are worse, but improving. So you want to go through one by one? Yeah. Okay, New Hampshire... Maggie Hassan doesn't have an opponent yet. So that Republican primary, September 13th. Uh, the St. A's poll, near and dear to your heart, mm-hmm. the St. Anselm's, yeah. uh, Hassan has a 44% approval. So she is clearly vulnerable. Um, the leading Republican opponent is a guy named Don Balduck. I don't know how to say his name. That's right. He's a Trump big lie guy. He's a, a right-wing zealot. If he wins, I think we have a good chance. He's a retired brigadier general who wants the U.S. to be directly involved in the war in Ukraine. And he called- he wants, he wants troops on the ground. Troops on the ground. He wants troops on the ground in Ukraine. And he called Governor Sununu a Chinese communist sympathizer. Wildly popular Republican governor, Chris Sununu, Chinese communist sympathizer. He also, by the way, doesn't believe that people should get to directly elect their senators. Okay. He wants to repeal that. He wants to repeal the 17th Amendment. Is he one of these, we're a republic, not a democracy guy? He wants the state legislature to pick the yeah. senators. So yeah, he yeah. Went, that's so the last, your last vote is for Don Bolduc, and then that's These it. guys are all worried about uh, majority rule. For You can you can figure out why. Um, always scary when just these right-wing crazy zealots are former generals in the military. That doesn't make me feel good. Yeah. He's, there's a, a, I think a lot of sort of the Republican establishment in New Hampshire is a little worried about him. Well, obviously, Chris Sununo is not a fan. Governor yeah. Sununo is not a fan. They of want the state Senate president. Yeah. Um, so that's no. But I think you're right. Like if he, if, if he ends up in uh, winning that primary and he isn't leading it right now, then I think Hassan has a has a much better shot. Yeah. She's probably much more of a probably a lean dem or likely dem. Yeah. Uh, should we go to Georgia? Georgia, I mean, Warnock versus Walker, you guys know. I mean, 538 has Warnock up a couple points, like 46.2% to Walker's 44.4%. This is a hard one. I mean, look, Herschel Walker is a terrible candidate, but there's also this big statewide governor's race. I think everyone's going to be turning folks out. The question I have is, I mean, I guess the Democratic Party's path to winning the Senate seat is either higher Democratic turnout or Republican split ticket voters, a combo of both. I don't know. It could happen. Herschel Walker is terrible. You know, we look, we we talked about we did a whole game about Herschel Walker and Brian Kemp when, in uh, in our Atlanta pod. Um, we had all kinds of uh, Herschel Walker greatest hits. Uh, there's a new one now that we just got over the weekend. Mm. Uh, he was asked about the Inflation Reduction Act, and uh, he said, "I don't know. A lot of money it's going to trees. Don't we have enough trees around here?" <sighs> A lot of money is going to trees. And it's like, a, like, what was he thinking it's about? Like a rake. He doesn't like raking. What was going on up there? That was Trump's, by the way, that was Trump's climate plan. That was, was to like plant a trillion trees or something. Well, Literally. That's awkward for him then. Anyway, whatever. No, I think, so I did a, for the wilderness, I did focus group in Atlanta. It was a focus group of black voters who had voted for Joe Biden and now either aren't sure who they're going to vote for or whether they're going to vote it was sort of an upsetting focus group. These people are there. Everyone I talked to there was very down on politics for a lot of good reasons, you know, hate Brian Kemp. So it's not like they wrote for him, but like weren't too happy with Joe Biden. But when I talked about Herschel Walker, I was like, anyone maybe going to vote for Herschel Walker? What do you think of Herschel Walker? They were like, he is stone cold fucking crazy. Absolutely not. That makes me feel better. Yeah. And they're not like super happy with Warnock, but they're all like, if we end up going to vote, we're going to vote for Warnock and we're going to vote for Stacey Abrams. Look, there's a real anti-incumbent thing going on i think across the country yes for sure for sure but walker was not yeah but what no no one liked herschel walker good good um news. all right so then we go to uh, arizona mark kelly and blake masters 
Yeah, I mean, so I think the polls have consistently had Mark Kelly ahead, um, including some Republican polls. Masters is a fairly recent nominee, so he hasn't had a lot of time. I don't know. Look, Kelly's a great candidate. He's got a lot of cash. He's an astronaut. I'm just worried. It's, it's a it's a wacky state with a wacky Republican Party and Carrie Lake running for governor on the, on the Republican side. I, I, I'm a little worried about it. You know, I think that Kelly, yeah, the, the the average of the polls right now has Kelly much further ahead than I thought he would be. Uh, he only won the state by, you know, it was like two and a half points uh, in 2020. And that, so that was just two years ago. Yep. And now the average has him around, you know, 8.3. Um, but he's just, he's running ads about Masters. Doesn't mention Trump, doesn't mention Peter Thiel, doesn't mention all this, like, basically just has two of his quotes. One, Blake Masters saying, maybe we should privatize Social Security. And the other saying that he wants a nationwide ban on abortion, no exceptions, and calling abortion demonic. Yeah, I mean, look, maybe he, that's all he needs. I know it, it's a very, like, old school feeling election of issues that have been important in elections for decades. Yeah. So hopefully that'll work. And then you got Mark Kelly running an ad with a Republican mayor endorsing him saying, oh, he, you know, he's good with Republicans and Democrats, which I know like makes, you know, probably makes some liberals uncomfortable, but it's like state like Arizona, Mark Kelly's been with Democrats and voted with Democrats and voted with Joe Biden every, every step of the way. Uh, unlike, you know, his uh, his his colleague mm. Kirsten Cinema. I do. Remember. Uh, he's been a great Democrat. So yeah, that's how you win Arizona. That's how you win Arizona. Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. So five thirty eight has her at forty five percent ish. Him at forty one percent ish. But Trafalgar, remember <laughs> those guys, the the uh, Republican polling firm who did a better job, I think, of reaching Trump voters back in the day. Um, had Laxalt up three in their most recent poll, and it makes me worried. I actually, I would say of the four Democrats up, I'm most worried about the Nevada race. Yeah, I am too, because of the demographics of the state, um, the challenges of incumbency. She's running on very local issues. She's running on like, we got drought relief funding and the Inflation Reduction Act, which, a great message, hopefully. And the other uh, issue that she's been running on is abortion, because, you know, we just talked about demographics in Nevada, and it's been sort of inching towards the Republicans over the last several years. But Nevada is a very pro-choice state. And so she's been really hammering uh, this issue. And I also think she's, you know, she's suffering from like, people don't know, she doesn't have a high profile in the Mm -hmm. Senate, right? Catherine Cortez Masto. Um, But you got Adam Laxalt, the Republican there, believes in the big lie, big lie supporter. Uh, He's called Roe v. Wade a joke. Um, Dan Pfeiffer, called him uh, the Connor Roy of uh, Nevada political dynasty. I like that. And then sure enough, Catherine Cortez Masto came out with an ad where she basically has music that's like the succession music, Mm -hmm. all about Laxalt. And she calls him like son of a DC lobbyist. He was kicked out of an elite school. He was arrested for assaulting a cop, but he still got back into another elite school. And she just, basically the whole ad is like Dan calling him Connor Roy come to life in an ad. I love it. No, I saw that ad. It was a good ad. It's pretty good. Yeah. But I think that's going to be, you know, if you can help uh, volunteer and help out Catherine Cortez Master, that's going to be sure. super important because I think that's a real tight one. Yeah. All right. So if one of these Senate Democrats lose, we'll need to flip a Republican seat to hold the Senate. If two lose, we'll need to flip two and so forth. Mm-hmm. Our best chances for flips are in Pennsylvania, yep. where John Fetterman and Dr. Oz are competing to fill retiring Republican Pat Toomey seat, and Wisconsin, where Mandela Barnes, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, is running against Ron Johnson. Um Look, Dan and I talked about Oz and Fetterman last pod. Tommy, uh, do you think Dr. Oz is feeling good that the debate has now moved from his crudite outing to how many houses he has? I mean, the worst candidate I've ever seen so far, <laughs> Dr. Oz. I've more own goals than a uh, six-year-old soccer game 
mind you, I mean, you guys didn't mention this because you're his opponent had a stroke. Yeah. He was literally off the playing field for months. I mean, Dr. Oz could have been running on the state owning every news cycle for months and months and months. Just Unbelievable. Instead, he was owned by the news cycle. Look, the media likes a comeback story. People aren't paying attention. I, I feel good. Uh, having 10 houses is, I mean, good for him, I guess. But not knowing how many houses you have or trying to draw a distinction between how many homes you own and how many properties you own, <laughs> that's called just digging your own political grave. John McCain famously got asked, uh, how many houses do you own during the 2008 race? Um, and uh, we ran ads on it for months and months and months. This campaign is like all of our best uh, McCain's out of touch and Romney's out of touch hits mm -hmm. times a million. Yeah, it really I mean, it's, it's just, it's truly something to it's watch. It's amazing. Crudite, it's all, it's just been Tell me, been I saw you got some, I guess you, you got some credit finally, the credit you deserve on lifting up the Crudite uh, video. There was a BuzzFeed story that said that, that noted that you did, uh, you tweeted it. Oh, but really? I yeah. did not see that. Yeah. Um, From Elijah. It's you and Elijah. Really yeah, I don't, just I don't of... think uh, <laughs> tweeting deserves a lot of credit, but I'll in give this Elijah. Case, in this case, you should take Props it. Props to Elijah there for finding um, that. Yeah, so, we're, so they have now moved, a lot of the forecasters have moved Pennsylvania from a toss-up, which Pennsylvania should always be a toss-up. It is an incredibly close state, but they're, because Oz is such a bad candidate, and, all, and to the Fetterman campaign's credit, because Fetterman is such a good candidate, done a good they've job. moved it to lean D in a lot of these forecasts. They've done a really good job. I mean, it, it, it again, let's just, it's so impressive what Fetterman's team has done. Yes. Because he has been unable to campaign. And in the past, Fetterman, I think, has been kind of like a one-man band going everywhere and meeting with everyone, his own turnout, his own field program, right? And because he had a stroke, he was unable to, to really campaign hard. And his team just filled the gap in such an impressive way with all these great digital ads, super creative attacks on Oz, uh, great use of their oppo file, which you know, is voluminous. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. lots of hits to be had on Dr. Oz, but they deserve a ton of credit. Seems like a fun campaign to be on. Uh, in Wisconsin, there's only been two polls since Mandela yeah. Barnes won the primary. The Fox News poll has him up four. Marquette has him up seven. Both pretty good quality polls. And, you know, and um, I think both had him at 50% or yeah. higher. That said, John, I, Wisconsin, Wisconsin polling too. The biggest, most disastrous polling misses know, in know, recent history. I don't even want to think about it. They, there's also a big governor's race in a great state party in Wisconsin. But as you know, as you said too, that there's an anti-incumbent mood out there, and you have Ron Johnson who's just been just sitting around. Out. You know, they again they elected Ron Johnson thinking like, oh, he's sort of a independent-minded businessman that will go to Washington or whatever, and he just has become a fucking Trump lackey, yeah, and a conspiracy theorist, and says all kinds of crazy shit all the time. He sucks. So, um, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully, Mandela Barnes can pull that out. All right. So there are also three other races where Democrats have a chance at flipping Republican seats: Tim Ryan versus J.D. Vance in Ohio. Val Demings versus Marco Rubio in Florida, and Sherry Beasley versus Ted Budd in North Carolina. How much of a long shot do you think these are? I think the short answer is I don't know. I want to add one more, which is Iowa. We got Admiral oh. Mike Franken running against Chuck Grassley, you know who's what, 140 call. years old. 140. Um, Franken had an impressive Navy career. Uh, he spent a bunch of time in, in Eastern Africa taking out terrorists, right? He was The guy was born and raised in Sioux City. I think he was like one of like nine kids uh, still lives there. So also an interesting race that we just keep an eye on. Ohio is a really hard state. Trump got 53% in 2020. Uh, but Tim Ryan has raised seven times the amount of money that J.D. Vance has so far. J.D. Vance, you might have noticed, is a weirdo <laughs> and kind of a schmuck. Yeah. But I'm worried about 
you know, super PACs riding to JD's rescue with a bunch of cash like Mitch McConnell just did. Can I read you a line from a Please. JD fundraising email that was just sent today? Yes. At this point, if I don't do a complete 180 on the fundraising front, not only will I have to possibly shut down my campaign, but Republicans may never win another race this year. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I mean, wow. There's, fundraising emails are bad in general, both sides, Democrats, Republicans. That is one of the, that, that's I, really I, taken it to a new I level. I just imagine J.D. Vance like, Turning the sign from open to closed on the window. <laughs> That's it. I'm done. Uh, you, you made me shut down my campaign. A... Look, I have been skeptical of this because, you know, Trump won Ohio 53-45. That's a big margin. It's a lot. It's a Eight big point. That means there's a has to be a lot of Tim Ryan, Donald Trump voters. Yep. People who voted for Donald Trump who vote for Tim Ryan this time around. A lot of them for Tim Ryan to win. Now, but even as, even as I explain this to my in-laws mm-hmm. and all and all and Emily's family and friends from Ohio, Ohio they ones, still say, yes. hey. We believe. Can I call them Buckeyes or does that offend them as not sort of Ohio State or Columbus people? I don't know if we should be getting into this as oh. two, two people who are not. Okay. Uh, I'm not that, Got you it. know, I can't, I can't okay. speak for them on that. Tweet it. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of people in Ohio who have a lot of uh, faith in Tim Ryan that he can pull this off. All right. And so I'm, I've started to believe. I've started to believe. The, the one that I really want to believe in is North Carolina because 538 has Sherry Beasley uh, and Ted Budd tied She's crushing him in fundraising. I think it's two to one as of the June 30th filing. And I just, in my soul, I want North Carolina to be a blue state. Obama and Kay Hagan won uh, statewide in in 2008. I don't really get what happened since. Yeah, I think what happens is the, uh, the, in the Trump era, they turned out just so many rural, exurban, white voters who had never turned out before or who just didn't mm-hmm. usually turn out before. And so even though it's a diversifying state and it was helping trending towards Democrats, sort of the Trump era brought it a little bit. Yeah. Just put it out of reach, which was unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but Sherry Beasley is a great candidate. You know, we interviewed her here. And and like I said, it's it's tied right now. So Yeah. yeah. yeah look, I, I'm rooting for her. Florida, like, listen, Florida, you just, you've broken my heart so many times that I just can't let you back in. I, I want Val Demings to win. I think hate, I, famously we hate Marco Rubio. I, what I wonder about Marco Rubio is he sits around his house and he puts on his like little athleisure outfits and his goofy hats and he records little videos that are just poorly lit and everything about him screams, I give up. I don't yeah. want this job. Yeah, well, the only satisfying thing about Marco Rubio is you know he'll never be president of the United States and that's what he's wanted more than anything. So it's it's comforting to know that he'll never achieve that but i'd also like him to not be in the yeah Senate he's like a, he's a jv ted cruz but there, there's two hundred thousand more republicans uh registered republicans i think in the state than democrats so that's yeah. just no i think i think Florida's gonna be a hard one it's tough but here's the thing all of these races like the, the senate is very much up for grabs here democrats can hold on to the senate we could even add to our senate majority as we've said this before too like forget about holding on to the senate you get two more senators than we have now who are pro-choice anti-filibuster and not only could we codify Roe v. Wade, but you could do a whole bunch of other uh, stuff that we couldn't get done because of the filibuster mm-hmm. if we also are somehow able to keep the House, um, which is a longer shot, but, you know, who yeah. knows? Yep. So anyway, uh, go to votesaveamerica.com, sign up for uh, Midterm Madness. Um, there are also some voter registration deadlines coming up, uh, and we're working at Vote Save America with the team at Vote Pro Choice. They have a plan to turn out 600,000 new likely Democratic voters in nice. some of the states we've been talking about That's and we'll lot. be talking about with Beto, Texas, Michigan, Georgia, Ohio, and North Carolina. Uh, they want to do this by November. For every $2 raised, uh, our partners at Vote Pro Choice can register a pro-choice voter. So every $2 
they can register another voter. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash VPC right now to chip in and sign up for Mentor Madness if you haven't yet. Yeah, please. What are you waiting for? Uh, when we come back, Better O'Rourke. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras goose. Dog. Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Joining us now, a longtime friend of the pod who is now running to be the next governor of Texas, Beto O'Rourke. Beto, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. Good to see you both. Great to see you. You too. Uh, you ran statewide for Senate in 2018 when Democrats had the wind at our back. You came closer to turning Texas blue than any candidate in decades. Now you're running for governor in a political environment that's much tougher for Democrats. What lessons from 2018 are you applying to this campaign What's different about this race and and what's different about you as a candidate? So there are a lot of good lessons um, going everywhere, making sure that you talk to and listen to everyone, write nobody off, take no one for granted. That was a big takeaway for me from 2018. And it's something that we're applying to this race as well. And so you'll certainly see us in, in Houston and in Dallas and in Austin and the kinds of places you would expect a Democrat to be, because I want to make sure I'm not taking anyone for granted. And within those reliably blue, as we're told, counties, we're trying to go to places where maybe Democrats haven't shown up because they've just taken these voters for granted. And oftentimes that's black and brown voters in Texas. 
But going to places like uh, Greenville or Madisonville or Quana, um, Longview, Texarkana, even Lubbock and Amarillo, bigger communities that have voted Republican for the last 20 or, or 30 years, showing up and seeing that there are a lot of Democrats, but also a lot of Republicans and independents who are looking for something better and often having more people than we have space in the halls that we've rented shows me that there is a deep demand for change in the state of Texas. That that holds true from what we saw in 2018, only much bigger this time. In terms of changes, you know, a, a mistake I made in 2018 was assuming that everyone understood Ted Cruz and, and just how dangerous this guy was, or that they had just formed their opinion on this guy. They loved him or they hated him. And there was just going to be little that I could add to that. Um, I, I now realize I left a lot of votes on the table. There are people who are working two or three jobs to make ends meet. They're taking care of their kids or their parents or just not plugged in the way that maybe I'm plugged in or you're plugged in politics. And the candidate me in that case, needed to do a better job of prosecuting the case on Cruz, just, just the loss that we were suffering from having this guy as our junior senator. In this race with Abbott, I'm making sure everyone knows that when the lights went out last February and more than 700 of our fellow Texans died, when your utility bills went up as a result, 45 bucks a month more than you were paying before that, one of the largest drivers of inflation in the state of Texas, your property tax increase up $20 billion cumulatively over the last seven years across the state of Texas. You know, five of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history in five years on this guy's watch. This is Greg Abbott's Texas, the extremism on a total abortion ban with no exception for rape or incest, turning his back on law enforcement and signing a bill called permitless carry that did away with our license to carry program. So no longer must you get a background check or proficiency in the firearm that you want to carry on our streets. You're just free to go out there fully loaded with the public none, the wiser or the safer for it. I want to make sure every single Texas voter knows that this is Greg Abbott. And by contrast, we can focus on the big things that bring us together, you know, world-class public schools, expanding Medicaid so that you can actually see a doctor in the least insured state in America, reversing some of this extremism on abortion and our gun laws, and then just doing stuff that invests in some of these communities that have so long been overlooked or forgotten because Abbott thinks he's got them in the bag, so he doesn't have to show up or deliver for them. Uh, broadband internet is, is a great example across Texas. Um, we invest in that as an infrastructure, as a technology, as a utility, we will unleash extraordinary economic power. So that's a big difference from the way I ran in 2018, and yet allows us to build on that base that produced the largest voter turnout in Texas history since 1970, had the largest young voter turnout probably ever. It was up 500% from the previous midterm election. And though we didn't win, a lot of Democrats got over the line that night in 18, 12 new state house reps, two new members of Congress that flipped control of that institution. And in Harris County, home to Houston, 17 black women got elected to judicial positions. So that was a transformative election. We held all of that ground, John and Tommy, in, in 2020. We didn't lose a single seat or position. We didn't gain as much as I think we should have in 2020, but it shows that that base is solid. Now we get to build on top of that. Yeah, I mean, listen, and win, I think I, by the way, and win. <laughs> hey, w winning sounds great. I mean, I think 
no one would ever accuse you of not working hard or not showing up or not going to all these places. Um, thank God Joe Biden got these these gas prices under control or else <laughs> your campaign would be literally bankrupt. But let's talk about uh, gun control for a minute because you know, this past summer, uh, Congress uh, in Washington, they passed the first gun control law in decades. And I think even the authors of the bill would concede that they wish it did a lot more. But I was wondering what you made of that law, especially given how extreme Governor Abbott is pushing for permitless carry, which sounds like, you know, the worst idea I could ever imagine. But, you know, Senator Murphy and some of the other sponsors of the bill, their theory of the case is basically, let's prove this, let's pass this law, let's get something done on a bipartisan basis and prove that the NRA can't make us pay a political price and then try to build on that success. I wonder if you agree with that. Yeah, I, I'm so impressed with Senator Murphy and others who worked on that. But this guy has been so persistent over the last decade and uh, never been deterred, never despaired, never gave up. And, and I think is proving that progress is possible and is the first to say what he's been able to bring to the table and get the president to sign is wholly insufficient to the challenge we face. And yet it's proof that this work pays off and it's one step among many we have yet to take. I, I think that is not lost on the people of Texas, on the families in Uvalde. We're now 13 weeks since 19 kids were slaughtered in that classroom along with their two teachers, kids whose bodies could only be identified by the shoes that they were wearing, doctors who saw those kids afterward and talked about how that high impact, high velocity round literally liquefied the soft tissue that it met in their bodies or, or in their heads. Those families, and they are Republicans or Democrats or folks in some cases who've never been politically engaged before to a person want us to take action and make change and ensure that no other family has to go through what they are experiencing right now and what they'll frankly live with for the, the rest of their lives. So that was some cause for hope for us here in Texas, because you're right, you know, Abbott may have only made things worse after Sutherland Springs and Santa Fe High School and Midland Odessa and El Paso, and now Uvalde by signing permitless carry into law. But there's an answer to that, and that is all of us. We can change the person in power and have someone who will work on things like at least raising the minimum age of purchase from 18 to 21. That mayor in Uvalde who had words for me when I showed up at that press conference mm -hmm. the day after that shooting, he and his council members unanimously sent a letter from the Uvalde City Council to Greg Abbott saying, hey, please call a special session and just raise the minimum age. No reason this guy at 18 years old could buy not one, but two AR-15s, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, perfectly legally, send off such signals that his friends called him the school shooter before he ever walked into the school. Jeez. We can do better than this. So yeah. to, to show that common ground between Republicans and Democrats demonstrates that this is possible, but we're going to need political leadership that will do this. Abbott's called a special session to go after trans kids, to go after critical race theory, to make it harder to vote in Texas. Cannot be bothered to call a special session to save the lives of kids. And most kids in Texas have already started the 2022-2023 school year, and literally not a thing has changed to make it less likely that they'll be shot in their classrooms, just like those kids in Uvalde or Santa Fe High School or so many others across the state of Texas. One trend that we saw in the 2020 election is a shift towards Republicans among uh, Latino voters, both nationally and in Texas, especially working class Latino voters in more rural areas around the Rio Grande Valley. Um, what are you hearing when you go to some of those communities 
because obviously one one issue is people who just haven't voted before. Another issue is people who had voted for Democrats, but you know decided I'm going to now vote for Republicans. And what do you what do you hear from those voters, and what are you saying them to to what are you saying to them to persuade them to uh, to give you a shot? When I ask and when I listen, you know, whether here in El Paso or down in the Rio Grande Valley or along the Texas-Mexico border, it is overwhelmingly the economy. Now, I'll give you an example. In the Eagleford Shale, if you have one of those great oil and gas jobs, you are making 60 bucks an hour. If you don't, you're on food stamps. Donald Trump in 2020 had an incredibly powerful, simple, compelling argument. It was just jobs. And specifically, it was oil and gas jobs in South Texas. Biden, unfortunately, did not have a message, at least not one that was heard in South Texas. There was no money spent by that campaign. And Republicans showed up and they were hungry. And Democrats literally, this was 2020, it was a pandemic. And so I I understand the excuses, but Democrats literally phoned in the work Republicans were on the door. They were they were hungry. They they really wanted this. And regardless of ideology or or partisanship or any other thing, and and all those can be important. I, I always give it to the gal or the guy who's going to work harder than than the other person. Um, I've shown up now seven times in the Rio Grande Valley, as you all know, not the easiest part of Texas to get to. I show up to do big public town hall meetings. All comers welcome. No holds barred. Anyone ask any question, ask it in English, ask it in Spanish. Talk about the things that are most important to people. And when we do, we make connections on the economy where Greg Abbott shut down all trade on the U.S.-Mexico border for more than a week earlier this year. And it just hammered the shit out of these communities, these import-export businesses. Literally, um, their traffic dried up and moved to New Mexico and to Arizona. Two-thirds of the produce that we consume in Texas was on those bridges, literally just rotting in the back of those trucks. That's not lost on those voters there. Mm-hmm. But to the point I was making earlier about prosecuting the case, I can't just assume that people will make those connections. I've got to be there to say, hey, Greg Abbott did this to your community. And here's what I propose to do uh, that's different. Not only am I going to support U.S.-Mexico trade, we're going to raise the minimum wage from $7.25, where it still is today, to 15 bucks an hour. We're going to expand Medicaid because you live in the least insured part of the least insured state in America. Um, we're going to make sure that we invest in your public schools because your teachers and counselors are making a fraction of what their counterparts across the nation are making. I believe in you. I'm going to invest in you. I've heard you. We're going to partner with you and follow your lead. And it really does seem to be paying off for whatever polls matter today. Not only are we polling better than Abbott in these communities, we're polling better than Biden did in 2020. Um, and though he did worse than Clinton did in those communities, um, he was doing far better than he's doing now. So um, it's, th- that's a fairly low bar that we passed. Now we really just have to build on it. And that's why I'm going back on the 1st of September to Edinburgh and to Brownsville. We've just learned, I hope, as a party, you just can't take anyone for granted. Um, no, no one's yours for life, regardless of how they voted before, the color of their skin, any other identifying characteristic that would differentiate themselves from anybody else. You got to go out there and fight for them. And so the only way I know to do it, maybe not the most sophisticated way, is to show up in person, be there, listen to folks, and and try to earn that vote. And I think that's what we're doing. 
So you mentioned earlier, you know, we were talking about Greg Abbott on on gun laws and how extreme he has been or continues to be. The other, you know, extreme policy position that's been we've been hearing about from Texas uh, for a while has been uh, anti-abortion activists passing these draconian bills. Um, that became more of a direct threat to everyone in the state when the Supreme Court Dobbs decision came down. How did that decision impact what you're talking about and what you're hearing from voters and whether it is or isn't motivating people? Because we're starting to see, you know, uh, uh, instances like in Kansas where uh, folks are coming out because they don't want the government restricting the kind of healthcare women can get. Yeah. So it's so important to remember that 50 years ago, half a century ago, abortion was just as illegal in Texas then as it is today. And it was Texas women who ended up um, delivering for Texas women. So Jane Rowe, as you all know, is a Texas woman, but her two attorneys, Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, who still lives in Dallas, Texas, successfully prevailed upon an all-male United States Supreme Court to win protection for the right to privacy to make these very personal and painful decisions. Texas women came through in 1972, 1973. I'm confident Texas women are going to come through in 2000. And 22, and I see it wherever we go. I mentioned being in Greenville, in in Hunt County, and you know, unless you're from there, um, you're you're not passing through there. You, you have to, you know, you have to want to go to Greenville or Hunt County to be there. We had a gym for for 500 people, reached capacity, 300 more waited outside, and I guarantee you, those 800 folks coming out in Greenville are not there primarily to see me or to rally for the Democratic Party. They are there to fight for and work for change. And that Dobbs decision, the total abortion ban with no exception for rape, no exception for incest in the state of Texas that starts at conception in a state that has one of the highest rates of maternal mortality in the world, because as you've foreclosed options to seek an abortion, you've also turned them uh, away for cervical cancer screenings, family planning help, just to see any kind of doctor at all. People are meeting the moment. And it's it's one of the very, um, you know, silver linings, I guess, in this really dark sky that's descended over the state of Texas it, is people aren't having it. And they're going to do everything they have to do in order to change it. And I do think we saw that in Kansas. I know that I'm seeing that on the ground across the state of Texas right now. And you better believe that will show up in the votes counted on the night of November 8th. I mean, the polls have us, you know, Quinnipiac says five down, others say two down, others say seven down. You know, we're probably somewhere around there, but I don't know that polling can measure the anger, the deep drive, um, the work ethic that people in Texas have that's going to produce the victory that I know we're going to see on the night of November 8th. This decision, the extremism of Greg Abbott, that's going to have a lot to do with the result that we see. Uh, somehow in the middle of this campaign, you managed to write a book about voting rights called uh, We've Got to Try. Um, it seems as if people who care about voting rights nationally and especially in Texas haven't had a lot to celebrate lately, speaking of dark clouds. Um, and, you know, one of the more pernicious effects of voter suppression is that it makes people think, like, why even bother if the system is so rigged? Why, why should I even do this? What do you say? What do you say to that? Yeah, I, I started this book about two years ago trying to answer that question because there's this temptation to despair, very understandable given the attack on women's reproductive rights, the LGBTQ community in the state 
of Texas. The fact that our electricity grid does not work when it gets too cold and, and literally people freeze to death in the energy capital of the world. The way I see it, these things would not be happening if more people had the ability to vote, if more voices were heard. This is not a reflection of the majority of us or who we are at our core as Texans. This is the product of a very rigged system where 750 polling places have been closed in the last decade, almost twice as much as the next closest state. Um, you know, a gerrymandered system based on race where black and brown Texans are drawn out of a congressional district to minimize not only the power of their vote, but John, to your point, the likelihood that they will that they will vote at all. And so against that, I wanted to know what can we do? And by looking at Texas history and specifically this extraordinary story of a guy named Lawrence Nixon, a black physician who lived in El Paso more than 100 years ago, I learned that not only can we overcome this attack on democracy and voting rights, we've overcome it before against much greater odds. This guy was fighting against the white primary. 1923, the state legislature here said, if you're black, you can't vote, literally. Like, no, uh, how many jelly beans are in the jar, or here's a literacy test, or quote the state constitution, just in black and white forbade African Americans from political participation. This guy fought it. Um, he said, I've got to try when he was told that he could not vote. Um, won two signal Supreme Court victories, finally won integration in 44, and it set the path for the first Texas president, LBJ, to sign the Voting Rights Act into law in 1965. So it's an extraordinary story, and it happens here in Texas, which again, today is the epicenter of voter suppression and voter intimidation, the toughest state in the nation in which to vote, toughest in which to register. And yet that doesn't have to be our future or our fate. We can change that, but it's going to take extraordinary courage, really tireless work, and it's going to take a lot of people. And thankfully, in this campaign, as an example, we've got 83,000 folks who volunteered to take shifts, knocking on doors, registering people to vote, having conversations with folks who've been the very targets for suppression and intimidation. So the stories in this book are stories of people like Lawrence Nixon or Opal Lee, um, who walked from Fort Worth, Texas, she's now 95 years old, to Washington, D.C. to prevail upon you know, first President Obama and then President Biden and members of Congress to make Juneteenth the first federally recognized holiday in, in decades and a holiday that recognizes the work that's taken place, but also the work left to be done. So some pretty inspiring people here in Texas who remind us that we can do this because we've we've done it before. So I hope that people read the book, um, take some inspiration from these stories as I have, and then put in the work to make sure that we come through. Man, I feel bad following up that like hopeful, optimistic question with this dark shit for me. But um, <laughs> the flip side of like all the good things you're trying to put into the world is a lot of what we're hearing in conservative media, which is increasingly conspiratorial and sometimes violent rhetoric. I mean, Tucker Carlson's show is just like agitprop about the great replacement theory that's led to real world violence. Trump's uh, inspiring his supporters to to attack the FBI, both rhetorically and then someone actually took him up on it in in, uh, in Ohio. I see videos of your events where you're out there on the road, you're trying to talk to people and like bring people together, but you also have folks showing up with AR-15s, maybe to protest, maybe just to kind of be intimidating. What is, you're on the front lines. Like, what, what does it feel like out there? Are, are you concerned about where the rhetoric is going? Are you concerned about 
I don't know, the safety of politicians who are like just trying to do their jobs. Yeah, I mean, I'm concerned about all of this. I, I think um, you all see this and feel it. And I think any um, anybody looking at this country today should be able to see it. Certainly the history books written you know, decades from now will 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 illustrate this or, or demonstrate that this is a, a defining moment of truth for us. We, we are about to either save and restore this democracy or lose it forever. And, and I don't know a better way to put it. And I guess that can sound dark. The, the other way to look at it is, I mean, how many generations have the great fortune to fight for the right to vote in this democracy? Um, I mean, you know, Johnson in that amazing speech in 65, where he's been inspired by John Lewis, who was nearly killed crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge, says, look, you know, at Concord, at Appomattox, and now in Selma, um, you know, all of us fighting for this right to vote, this great democracy, and um, laying that charge at the feet of the members of Congress, like, look, you you all can do something about this. And by the summer of that year, um, he was able to get an almost all-white Congress, including many significant senators and House members from the South to expand the franchise and create the first true multiracial democracy in American history. Um, we, we are a generation now that has that fight before us, uh, as theirs did overcoming Jim Crow. And in this book, we've got to try to tell the story about what happened in Texas post-Reconstruction, where African-Americans still held elected office, still nominally were were able to vote and came up against, you know, kind of the, the precursor to the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Texas, these armed vigilantes who would go in and literally steal the vote at polling locations. Very reminiscent in some ways to me of what happened on January 6, 2021. You'd have um, legitimate, lawfully decided elections and this very violent white minority uh, would would come in and literally steal the ballot box, um, you know, shoot people, open violence and and civil strife in some of these counties in Texas, and then the United States Congress um, and very you know well-meaning people catch wind of this, hold these hearings, investigate it, come up with an elections bill, not unlike the one that we have on the table right now in the United States Congress that will allow for federal protection for voting rights in the states of the former Confederacy and throughout the rest of the country for that matter. And you have this pro-democracy party, the Republicans at the time, they have a majority in the House, they have a majority in the Senate. They just elected a guy who ran in part on a platform of protecting the right to vote. And, and this elections bill passes the House, it's gonna pass the Senate and it gets hung up on a filibuster. And they're unable to get it done. This is by 1890. And so you wait 75 years until 1965 and LBJ building on the work of Lawrence Nixon to, to truly realize that opportunity that was present back in 1890. Part of the message from this book is we may be at an 1890 moment where if we don't get our act together and save this democracy, how many decades will we be in, in the darkness again, or will we ever get it back at all? So th that's, that's why I use the, the language that I'm using. I think this is a now or never moment. I don't know that you get a 2024 unless you come through big in 2022. Because to, to your point, Tommy, there are people in positions of power and now running for greater power who deny the, le the legitimacy of the last presidential election. And I, I guarantee you will deny the, legit the, the, the legitimacy of the vote if their candidates don't prevail 
in in future elections. We, we've got to win this one this time and no bigger battleground than the state of Texas. This is the epicenter of it all. Win it and it forever changes what is possible and I think protects our democracy going into another historical presidential election. So it, it's all on the line and nowhere more so than right here. Beto, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, yeah. It's it's so inspiring to see you out on the trail again, and um, and 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 to see you continue to be in this fight with such uh, determination and such joy. Uh, so we we appreciate that, and and good luck out there. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you both. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen to Listen to, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that we're brain. We're stuffing content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a fog rod. <laughs> <laughs> Become a member today. Go to Cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we go, we just wanted to let everyone know that uh, the book that no one was waiting for. Nobody is now available for purchase. It's called Breaking History, a White House memoir by Tommy's favorite public servant, Jared Kushner. Uh, it is, for some reason, 492 pages. <laughs> just wait, wait, just 492 pages. What? I mean, what? He was an advisor in the White House for four years. What is he writing for 492 pages? It's received one of the worst book reviews I've ever read in the New York Times, which called it soulless and then goes on to say, uh, Kushner looks like a mannequin and he writes like one. That's one of their nicer lines. Mm-hmm. Tommy, would you like to share some of your favorite parts? I know you've been waiting a long time for this. Yeah, listen. So Jared is the worst. He he bought his way into Harvard. He married his way into power. And now he's trying to ghostwrite his way into the story he wants written about himself. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think we can let him do that. This, I think, was my favorite uh, paragraph in this book review. Who wrote this book review? Can we do a little, do a little fast Googling here? We had to give this person the credit. They deserve. It's a good idea. Um, this book is like a tour of a once majestic 18th century wooden house, now burned to its foundations, that focuses solely on and rejoices in what's left amid the ashes, the two cinched bathtubs, the gravel driveway, and the mailbox. Then later it goes on to say, reading this book reminded me of watching a cat lick a dog's eye goo. Because <laughs> he's such a <laughs> such a suck up to Donald Trump. My, my favorite part is it, the, the review talks about how Jared recalls every drop of praise yes. he's ever received, such as, th- these lines are in the book. You deserve an award for all you've done. Jared's a genius. 
I've been in Washington a long time, and I must say, Jared is one of the best lobbyists I've ever seen. And then the book reviewer goes on to write, a therapist might call these cries for help. I love that, too. By the way, the reviewer is an individual named Dwight Garner. And he's been writing uh, book reviews for the New York Times for quite a while. Since 2008. I just want to say, Dwight, you're a brilliant writer. He does make a point towards the end that I think really captures Jared, too, and and how useless he is Mm -hmm. in general. Because he's like, look, he's not... Jared's not going to impress uh, any like moderates or Democrats. Like no, yeah. no one likes Jared. Jared's not like an intellectual heavyweight by any means. Right. So who is this book for? It's certainly not for the MAGA base either because they don't trust him. Right. They like their Don Juniors. They like Donald Trump. Right. They don't like Jared Kushner. So he ends up calling him. He says he's a pair of dimples without a demographic. Yeah, that was beautiful. Which I think that is true about Jared. There, there's just the, the utter lack of self-awareness. There's a description of um, breaking up with Ivanka and then getting back together and it kind of going down on uh, Rupert Murdoch's yacht. And they say they were having lunch at Bono's house in some town in the French Riviera. Rupert stepped out to take a call. He walked back in, whispered something in my ear about buying the Wall Street Journal. And then he's like, after lunch, Billy Joel, who'd also been with us on the boat, played the piano while Bono sang with the Irish singer-songwriter Bob Geldof. First of all, Jared, you're, like, Jared's occupying this world of... Does he just hang out with 70-year-olds all day long? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think. You just hang out with the Murdoch family? Like his, like his father-in-law. It's pretty... He's a... He, so I mean, he did do the whole you know Middle East peace thing. So it, no, guys, he did not to, do fucking him, Middle East. You have to give him credit for that. Middle East, the Middle East, doing Middle East peace means a Palestinian <laughs> state. I'm so pissed off at how this has gotten bastardized and twisted by sociopaths like you. Just because you get, <laughs> get you get autocrats in the UAE to cut a deal with the Israeli government because we pay them off with some weapons. That's not Middle East peace. Look, you just, you can't. It's a trade agreement. It's always Trump is bad. Trump is bad. The Abraham Accords, one of the greatest, one of the greatest accomplishments of the 21st century. And you just can't even give it the kind of acknowledgement it deserves. I hope that you and Ben read that part of the book aloud on Pod Save the World about his exploits. (sighs) I think it'll just be insufferable. I've read like 200 (laughs) pages. I've been trying to kick around an idea. So... Back in the day, we had some bunch of really, some fun bets on this show. Mm-hmm. You know, we had like the Awesome Blossom or whatever, and yeah. other associated things. During what year we were forced to um, we were forced to tweet things uh, yeah. against our will. Yes, that yes, was tweet against too. our will. I wanted to put forward an idea for a competition where we maybe we crowdsource it, or maybe we just pick amongst ourselves the worst political biography, and the loser has to read it and write like a two page book report. Um, John and uh, John have been resisting this idea because they're functionally illiterate unless it's a I bunch just, of tweets stacked together. I don't together. know. what. How, how do you lose this? What What is the game? You've never said, what I don't the, know. How do you I, lose? We're, we're talking Tommy about betting on Tommy, here's races. The thing. Here's the thing. Or, <laughs> Tommy wants to write a two-page book report about Jared Kushner's book, and he's looking for a device to get himself to the point where he can write that. And he's so he's backed into this competition thing, which I, I'm ready to compete. Do you want to do predictions? Should we well, should we predict the midterms, even then, though we're out of the prediction? I know, the, we're not, we're trying. And then you guys come You'll up with a contest. Let us know. Maybe there's a contest that we could let us know what the contest is. We'll all is. feel obligated to have the rosier prediction because we don't <laughs> want to upset anybody, you know? Like, wait, you, their campaign doesn't win. We've got Dan Pfeiffer, the biggest optimist now. Dan's running around telling everyone that Democrats are a lock. Yeah, I don't lock like, on the- I don't like who Dan has become <laughs> with this optimism. Dan has succumbed to optimism. Uh, Dan is, we lost Dan in optimism. Uh, people complain about nepotism. I'm the one who got the steal here. That's maybe my favorite thing. It's got to be a Trump quote. This is, I mean- The, the most- Untrump sounding quote in the history of regurgitating Trump quotes. Jared Kushner, I re- I'm going to be really sad if a bunch of people buy this book. Don't buy this book. There was also a review by Peter Navarro 
the former trade advisor that took it down. Not a fan of Jared's. Many of of the Trumpers were not fans of Jared's and many of the people who worked in that White House. It was number one on Amazon today. I know, I know. I, was, I wasn't going to bring that up. but uh, Well, look, the truth sometimes hurts. I do think you can easily kind of juice those numbers. Like there's no, listen, Jared Kushner just got um, a $2 billion check from the Saudi government for his little investment fund, despite never having invested money before. He will be getting probably a 2% management fee on that money. Yeah. And then if he invests it and makes a profit, he'll probably get 20% of those profits. So what I'm saying is he's a shitty little rich kid sitting on a ton of Saudi money now. I would be shocked if Jared didn't buy himself or have someone buy for him a couple thousand yeah. copies of this book just but, to stuff in a, you know, you know, we talk garage. about, you know, we have authors on this show. We, we, we push books on the show. This don't buy this book. If any of you and then go tell book. your friends, don't buy this book and then have them tell their friends, don't buy this book. Just spread the word. Was the Abby Hoffman steal this book? Just, just no one, no one needs to read this book. No, you're not going to learn anything. Anyway, thank you to Jared for writing it so we could uh, read that review because that was very enjoyable. Great review. Uh, Dwight, Dwight Garner. Dwight Garner, thank you. Come on you. the show. Please never review anything that Thank any you of for the write. review. Uh, thank you to Better O'Rourke for joining us today. And uh, we will talk to you on Thursday. Bye, everyone. See ya. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Olivia Martinez and Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montu. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. 